Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined with Matthew Stewart, who is a postdoctoral researcher in the Edge Computing Lab at Harvard University. He holds a PhD and MSc in Engineering Sciences and Data Science from Harvard University. Matthew's research work is highly interdisciplinary with a focus on machine learning, autonomous machines, and embedded systems. Matthew is also a part-time blogger for Towards Data Science, a co-creator of the Harvard X Tiny ML courses, and a research coordinator at ML Commons. Welcome to the show today, Matthew. Thanks. Thanks, Jaden, for having me. Yeah, excited to be here. Super excited to have you on the show. I kind of wanted to kick this off and ask you a little bit, um, if you could share with us a little bit about you know, your journey, uh, you know, pursuing your PhD and also kind of becoming a postdoctorate uh, researcher at the Edge Computing Lab at Harvard. Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what brought you here. Yeah, so if you just see it off the bat, it looks kind of random, I'm aware. Um, so my undergrad is in mechanical <laughs> engineering. Um, and then I did my last year abroad in, in Singapore, NUS. And I did my thesis. Uh, I got like last pick of theses and I worked on like an oil and gas project. And so that got me really interested in sort of the environmental work um, of engineering. And then I was looking for, for PhDs in this area. And I found a guy who was looking for an engineer to fly drones in the Amazon. And I thought that sounds super cool, you know? <laughs> so naturally I ended up doing that. Um, got to do a bunch of trips there, lived in the Amazon for a few months. Um, but then one thing I noticed about that particular field is that, you know, I thought it would be very sort of, like with, with science, you could have a huge impact, but it turns out that uh -huh. when you publish these papers, um, you know, like the end goal is basically like, okay, it gets put into a climate model or like a, um, a policymaker is going to cite you to further some agenda, but you don't really have any sort of direct impact on the field or, you know, okay, think, things like climate change as a whole. Um, and so then I started working um, on like edge computing stuff because I was working with these drones and sensor systems. And, um, I found that actually, like in computer science, you tend to work directly with companies like, you know, Metro and Google. And so you have a much direct, like much stronger and more direct impact on these, these areas. And given that these are sort of ballooning okay. out of control in terms of like emissions and things, actually you could have way more impact doing that than you could in the field of environmental science itself. So that's kind of the rationale of how I ended up in this area. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Very cool. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Something I would love to kind of ask you about is, you know, like, how do you integrate machine learning, autonomous machines, you know, embedded systems kind of in your interdisciplinary research that you're doing? Yeah, so the the lab I'm in, it's uh, run by VJ Reddy. He's the founder of um, MLPerf, which is kind of like the main reason ML Commons exists. And, you know, it's used by like NVIDIA mm -hmm. and stuff to, to benchmark their systems. Um, but his big thing nowadays is like tiny machine learning. And so basically that's like ed edge computing is just anything that's not in the cloud or data center, like HPC computing kind of thing. So things like smartphones, laptops, um, embedded systems. 
And sort of that got revolutionized maybe five years ago or so when people were like, hey, why don't we just, instead of, you know, having these data, like things like Alexa, send data up to the cloud and do the processing, why don't we just do it on the device? You save so much so much energy because communicating is very expensive energy-wise. And, you know, there's that whole latency of, okay, it takes me several seconds to send it to the cloud and do the processing and send it back. It's way faster if I just do it here. Um, and so that opened a whole new array of use cases of, you know, certain things you can't send to the cloud, like medical data and stuff. So um, you have a lot more opportunities there. And then in terms of mm-hmm. autonomous systems, you know, they run using sensors and TinyML works with embedded systems and sensors. So they just kind of all fit nicely into that same um, package. And the work that we do in the lab is very interdisciplinary. So we have some people doing robotics. So that's still edge computing. Um, I work on like sensor systems myself, and then we have an autonomous car, um, a guy doing flexible electronics. So it's very sort of mixed and matched. Um, most labs are way more sort of focused on one specific area, I'd say. Yeah. But just because that's computing is so interdisciplinary, um, there's a lot of things you can do with do with it. That's super cool. I should have had you do this at the very beginning, but like for just for the listeners, can you give a brief explanation of what edge computing is and why it's like kind of applicable and really interesting in AI right now? Um, well, I kind of just did with the like cloud versus, um, so like, yeah, basically if anything that is, so the cloud is like, you know, centralized system. Um, you go to a data center. So Google has these huge buildings with like thousands of servers in them. And that's where most companies host their, um, their models and stuff. You know, when you log into like, Google Docs, you're just logging into a server in one of these in one of these data centers. Um, mm-hmm. And we kind of say the edge is like, it's the edge of the cloud. So it's still connected to the internet, but it's it's like, you know, maybe in someone's home or yeah, it's your laptop connected to the internet. It's maybe like a, a sensor system. So like, you know, the, the ones you have that say how much energy you've been using in your house or like a Nest thermostat. These are all kind of edge devices because they're at the edge of the cloud. Um, and yeah, so like I was saying, like it's really energy intensive to send data to the cloud. And so if you remove that capability and you just do processing on the device, we're talking about a factor of 10 smaller energy consumption. Um, so instead of having like a device like Alexa, where you're sending queries up to the cloud and you're processing and sending a response back, if you did it on the device itself, you could have you know, have it running on a coin cell battery for a year, maybe, as opposed to yeah, running it on this giant 600 watt GPU for like maybe five seconds and then leaving it idle for for an hour. Yeah, so um, you get it's it's largely like the latency benefits, the energy benefits, um, and I guess just sort of general privacy security. If you're not sending things up to the cloud all the time, you don't really have that same liability. Um, because when you send it to the cloud, you don't know where it is, right? It could be in the US, it could yeah, shit off to another country. And for some types of data, you get in trouble if you do that. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are really excited about that whole prospect um, of, you know, eventually a lot of AI models, you know, open source models or other models like running on edge computing devices. And uh, it's really fascinating concept that, you know, like we're not quite there in a lot of regards, but um, as these models get more efficient, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that kind of evolves and shifts. 
something I've, I'd love to ask you about is, you know, what inspired you to co-create the Harvard X tiny ML courses and what impact do you hope that they are going to have? Yeah. So basically, well, I should say that BJ is like the creator, so he should get all the credit. Um, but okay, basically it's, um, it's just way more accessible than traditional machine learning, right? You, to do machine learning, you need a laptop at least, or you need you know, access to these huge servers. And so a lot of the, the AI technology has been sort of kept in companies like Meta and Google where they have all of the expertise and it's not really been democratized in any way. And that's why like all of the frameworks are built by these, you know, these two companies. Um, but the cool thing about tiny machine learning itself is that, you know, I can go and buy a $5 microcontroller and I can do something cool with it without necessarily having much expertise in, in anything. You know, I can just learn it the same way I would a hobbyist project, like building a radio. I could just go and build an image classifier to detect like food weights or, um, you know, when someone, when someone's stealing my like, uh, beehives or whatever, if I'm a farmer. So there's really interesting use cases that you would just never consider or be able to do with, with traditional, um, machine learning hardware. And then also, cause you have access to these sensors, you just have a way larger array of use cases, um, than you would have with the traditional types of data that you have uh, with these systems. So it's, it's usually pictures, right? Or um, audio data or texture data. But yeah, if you have sensor data of temperatures, CO2, um, inertial measurement units, so, you know, like orientation, stuff like that, you can do some pretty interesting stuff with them that you couldn't do otherwise. And in terms of what we were hoping to get out of it, it's, you know, democratization of, of this knowledge we work for a university, so it's always nice to uh, have greater outreach. And I think we had over yeah. had over a hundred thousand people take the course, and we were doing some wow, yeah, we were doing some math on that. And we were like, well, you'd have to teach for like several hundred years to reach that many students. <laughs> so, you know, that's yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing, especially when like right now it's such a hot topic. You know, so many people want that information. Yeah, just the traditional teaching method would have taken a hundred years to actually get it done. So that's really incredible and super cool. You know, it's nice to see you're already having a really big reach and a really big impact on that. Something else I'd love to ask you about is, you know, as a research coordinator at ML Commons, what are some of the most pressing challenges you see in machine learning, especially, you know, in the whole community and, and seeing that today? Yeah, I guess there's a few. Um so, you know, like generative AI is a huge thing right now. So I'd say that's something you hear a lot about. Um, and Emma Commons is known for benchmarking, right? It's like you take your sister and you compare it to someone else's and then you just, you know, it's like the Olympics. You say who's better. Um, but the thing is, how do you, how do you benchmark a generative AI model? You know, what's the right thing to measure? The way that uh, OpenAI has been doing it in the papers they publish is they say, oh, well, you know, we did better than like 80% of the people that took the SAT. And so they're comparing it to like a human level, which is a really okay. good thing to do. But then you miss out on a lot of other things like, okay, well, you know, is the, are the outputs like, um, are they biased in specific ways? Are they really good at some topics and not other topics? And so, you know, if you measure one thing very specifically like that, you're automatically, and you use that as like the way to plug yourself forward, um, you're missing all of the other potential aspects. And because these... It's, it's like so subjective for a language model or just a generative model in general. Um, you know, you get what you measure. 
if you measure SAT scores, you'll end up with a really good SAT solving <laughs> language model, but it might be terrible or it might lie to you half the time. <laughs> yeah. So that's one aspect. Another one is um, compression of these models, right? So you've seen, we, we saw this like bifurcation of machine learning where you had on a laptop or whatever, and then we start getting huge models where you can't even run it on one machine. You have to like do distributed training across a thousand machines and you have billions of parameters. And there's no way you could ever run that on like a, a normal machine. Um, so massive, massive models. And then we saw for tiny machine learning, you sort of go the other way. You go to sort of tinier and tinier models. And I think now the, the big model community has realized that's not the way to go because it costs so much to train these models. It uses so much, mm. um, there's, there's so many carbon emissions, and it's just not like, it's not scalable much further. And you don't really get any benefits out of doing it. And so you've started to see people making slightly smaller models that perform just as well as the big ones. And so I think you've really seen the peak of the large language model when it would start to sort of become more efficient. So what people were starting to describe as like small, large language models. Um, and you'll start seeing them being put on smartphones and stuff, but then you get into the challenge of, okay, well, how do I make it as good as ChatGPT, but it's on my smartphone or even on my smartwatch, things like that. Um, so that's going to be really interesting to see, to see how people deal with that. Um, and then a big, I guess another big challenge that I'm seeing a lot of right now, just because I work in census is that, um, like when you start having all of these intelligent sensor systems around that have microphones and cameras on, cause they can connect these models. You know, there's a lot of privacy concerns that you get. Um, and that could have, you know, very far-reaching implications. So if you imagine in five years' time, you have a bunch of, like, let's say your toaster is smart and your microwave is smart, or your TV is smart, and you go up to your toaster and you say, hey, can you make me some toast? And then all of a sudden, all of your devices turn on and they all have cameras on and they're looking at you. Um, and if someone's hacked into you, that's a problem too. Um and you'd have things like gaze tracking, so your toaster would be able to look at you and say, oh, I know he's looking at me and not the microwave, so I should be the one that was... Never. Um, but it's, so it actually is pretty cool, that idea of these future systems, but you know, just the, the privacy of, okay, someone's hacked into my Wi-Fi and now they can see me doing literally everything in my house. They could screw up my toaster so it like burns everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's crazy. And even... I've seen some really interesting like AI models that like, yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. So there's like, there's that one side at the same time. I feel like a lot of technology exists today. that can do similar things. Like I've seen like an AI model that literally use like your Wi-Fi signal to like essentially get a 3d map of like your house and you, like it can see you as a person based off your Wi-Fi signals pinging off you, which is like crazy. But yeah, there's definitely like a lot of security and privacy concerns and things to be aware about, like with all of this integration. Um, so I'm sure you're kind of at the forefront of seeing seeing that play out and uh, trying to solve some of those problems. Something I'd be curious to hear uh, your perspective on is kind of the the evolution of where this is going. Like, how do you really see the role of edge computing edge computing evolving in the context of you know machine learning and AI? Where is this where is this gonna go? Yeah, so um, I'd say the biggest thing was just like, you know, you had these dumb IoT devices where you could interface with the cloud. It's dumb because it's not doing anything itself. It's just like a portal for the cloud. Yeah. 
And then you add machine learning onto it and it's like, okay, well now I can do so many things. Um, but there's still things that you, you can't do, you know, for example, sensors tend to drift over time. And if you have a model that you trained two years ago, it's maybe not representative of what is happening now. Um, and I think just, uh, just recently earlier this year, there was a paper that was released that showed you could actually do on device training using less than 256 kilobytes. Of, of memory, which is insane, you know, like you need no memory to train a model continuously when it's not even connected to the internet. And so that means that you can actually just control sensor drift. Now you could say, okay, I know my sensors are getting worse over time because of degradation or whatever. Um, and that presents a lot of cool opportunities for, you know, devices necessarily like, so I used to work in the Amazon. Let's imagine you put a bunch of devices in the middle of the Amazon. Clearly, you're not going to go there very often because it's a jungle. Mm -hmm. And so you want them to last a long time, and then you want them to also not drift. So in that in that uh, kind of situation, you could deploy something and just have it run for a long time doing this machine learning without necessarily having to touch it if you had enough batteries and like you know, solar power and stuff. Uh -huh. So I'd say that's, that's a super interesting um, development that I've seen just this year. Um, otherwise, though, honestly, it's not been super hot in this particular area recently i think it's gotten sort of way more commercial of everyone trying to build cool devices like smart posters and tvs and stuff and the big problem is just like nobody knows like uh i remember the professor i worked with vj the whole reason we started developing this new paradigm of sensing was that he bought um he bought this tv and he was saying that one day he was doing yoga in his living room and the tv said hey do you want us to analyze your yoga poses for you he was like, oh, you need a camera to do to do pose estimation. And then he realized that there was a camera at his TV the whole time for six weeks since he got it, and he just never knew. Really? Yeah. And so we all sat there and laughed at him and said, oh, if a professor of edge computing doesn't know his TV has a camera in it, then we're all screwed. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so I'm definitely <laughs> actually... Like, uh, I don't know. I think it's one of the newer, like, smart TVs. Um but yeah, I definitely see that being a common problem in the next few years and people being like, oh, maybe we should not do this. Or at least like there should be a label that says there's a camera in my TV. Right. Disclaimers. That's really interesting. It's kind of funny, though, when you when you talk about um, all of those Internet of thing, those IoT devices and stuff. It reminds me of the TV show Silicon Valley. If you've seen it, there's like a part where <laughs> they they pretty much like hacked into or they got added to like this whole network of like smart fridges and uh they essentially used it for like a lot of their processing but it's kind of funny it's making me think of you know how crazy it would be if you have all of these smart devices all around the world and yeah people people somehow get like uh machine learning to be constantly running on those devices and and uh training things over there and use them as like a you know decentralized network anyway some bitcoin mining on your fridges yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very funny. Um, I'm wondering, what are some of the more exciting use cases that you've seen that are kind of changing consumer behavior when it comes to natural language processing or other things? Um, yeah, so, well, I mean, I don't work in industry, so it's hard to say, but I have seen some cool stuff right uh, recently. So I know that um, at least... I vaguely know that there's there's some like hedge funds and things that are basically trying to build language models that are they act as like an oracle for the 
the stock market. So you can just ask it things like, oh, hey, here's an earnings report. What do you think is going to happen? Um, so mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty cool. I'm sure you get paid a lot of money to, to develop that if you had enough skills. Um, and then also, I've seen the same thing for, for medicine. So, you know, you, re you really need to like fine tune this on huge amounts of patient data and stuff. So there's complications with that. But if you imagine going to the doctors and they just have a language model there that knows everything about you and then you tell the, doctor the symptoms and they're like, oh, well, I think you should do this, but let's see what ChatGPT also thinks. And then ChatGPT says, yeah. oh, actually, you might have this rare thing. You should take this test. And then, you know, yeah. That would be super cool if, if it worked. Um, so I could definitely see some yeah. really specific use cases of language models generally in, you know, especially like scientific or just high-tech areas um, if you have enough mm -hmm. high-quality data. But that's that's the main concern. Yeah. Like how do you get the high-quality data? Because we've seen with language models, if they kind of trade on their own outputs, you end up with this... Um, model collapse basically where it just starts giving you nonsense yeah. outputs and stuff so um, yeah yeah it's definitely um, very exciting another concern yeah that i have with that is uh hallucination or uh, i think some people call them confabulations now but <laughs> so just making making stuff up basically like a human when they don't know what they're doing um but one thing i've seen which is super interesting and i feel like it might actually go somewhere is trying to connect language models to this thing called a knowledge graph. And so a knowledge graph mm -hmm. is basically just like a large database which gives logical associations between different entities. So think of like uh, Wikipedia as a good example. You know, you say like, okay, th there's this famous person, they were born on this day, blah, blah, blah. If you can somehow connect that to the language model to constrain it so that, you know, when it makes stuff up, it can see if it's consistent with this knowledge graph. Um, that could be a way of sort of making it make fewer things up, I would say. Um, right. So that's very cool. And then, it, and yeah, I think it's super. I was going to say, oh, one you more, sorry, go is, for it. Um, right now, the transformer model is like the basis of all language models. And uh, just a few weeks ago, there was a paper that was published, which I'm a little bit skeptical of because I haven't really gone through it in full detail. Okay. Uh, but they propose basically a better architecture that is much cheaper to run inference on. And, you know, that's maybe not the most interesting or exciting thing to say, but that would have huge implications in industry. If you're, you know, if you only need a fraction of the, the computing power to do an inference on a language model, you would save yourself maybe a factor of 10 in costs. And right now you're seeing this huge AI boom with, with chips. So it would definitely have some, some ramifications. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I've also heard from a lot of people kind of in the AI space, and there's a kind of this interesting concept that I've looked at recently, which is, of course, we have the transformer model right now. And this is kind of what everyone talks about. And it's like how we're building all these AI systems. And a lot of people are talking about a problem that we're getting into right now is, you know, you have someone like OpenAI who gets $10 billion from Microsoft, and they're plugging this straight into the transformer model. They're like, there, there possibly are, because before Transformers, there was other different avenues we were exploring for how to do some of the similar things with AI and how to achieve it. And they're saying, like, we're almost getting, it's almost like vendor lock-in. Like, we're, all, we're, we're putting so much money into this one method, which is kind of the Transformer model, or just different ways that we do these. We put so much money into them once we find them, that sometimes when there's these, you know, new technologies that potentially are better, um, they, you know, people are just like, well, we've already spent like a billion dollars on this. We're not even going to touch that. Like, we're just going to keep yeah. the idea just as good as we can get it. So I think that is uh, 
that is an interesting thing. But it's really cool when you do see kind of these new shifts and people saying, hey, look, there's this completely new way to do it. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, that problem is probably good because it, it leaves a little space for new companies, new upstarts, people that are willing to take risks to, you know, have some sort of competitive edge to get into the market and, and try new things. But yeah, there's just a little bit, there's a lot less money that has already been poured into that specific use case or industry. Um, something I would love to ask you about, because you kind of touched on this, uh, some of the ethical considerations, like what are some things I know you've kind of worked, you have people in your lab. I know you, you, you probably don't work on like the autonomous vehicles as much and whatnot, but what are some ethical considerations that are kind of concerning or you think people should think about when it comes to AI? There's, you know, facial recognition, autonomous vehicles, Internet of Things, there's all this different stuff. What are some of the ethical things we should be thinking about? Um, I'd say, actually, yeah, a good thing is probably um, security recently. Like, uh, you know, you probably heard about the MGM hacks and you'd be like, oh, what does that have to do with any of this stuff? Um, but if you go and speak to a cybersecurity expert, they'll be they'll just tell you that they're like scared terribly of of IoT devices because you know if you have 10 billion devices and they're just placed all around the place and they're all connected to your network that's 10 million endpoints that a hacker can be like oh well look at all these things I have to play with um, and especially like uh, I remember speaking to someone that uh, there's this conference called the Black Hat Conference in Vegas um, and it's usually yeah. held at like the Luxor Casino and I remember someone telling me that last year um, it, the casino system got hacked through a thermometer in a fish tank, which sounds ridiculous, but they like took down the whole system just by hacking into this fish tank. Um, and see, if you can do that and bring down an entire casino, you know your house is probably not safe. If you have like a, <laughs> if you have one of those electronic locks on your door, if someone has enough time and they they really want to, like they will definitely be able to, to break into that. Um, and it's you know you can spend infinite amounts amounts of money on security. Um, and you could still technically hack it. So it's just like, it's it's trade-offs, right? Um, I'd say for most people, it's just not an issue. But I feel like the consumer sentiment is going to go towards, I want to make sure my devices are safe and they're not spying on me. And I can't just hack it by, you know, going and downloading some random library like AirCrackNG and breaking into someone's Wi-Fi. Uh, so, so that's a huge one. And that also... I guess sustainability that that ties in with um with the vehicles as well. So I, I remember reading estimates in this in some paper that data centers um, are going to be about ten percent of the carbon emissions by twenty thirty, which doesn't sound like a lot, but compared to every industry in the world, that's, that's pretty big. Um, and you know those those emissions didn't exist ten years ago, so it's very easy for them to sort of balloon out of control without you thinking about them. Um, and so now sustainable computing is like a an actual research area where people are sort of making developments. Like how do we make even things like language models more sustainable in terms of their training and deployment um, and accelerators as well. So you might end up having the accelerators of, of the future not being the most power hungry and fast, but they're actually just the most energy efficient. Uh, so that will be an interesting development just to kind of see what happens. And with autonomous vehicles, you might find that if you start deploying thousands of them, they might offset their own emissions in some ways because you'd have um, efficiency benefits in terms of like, oh, it drives smoother than a person because, you know, it knows when to brake just based on information from other cars around it. Interesting. And then also traffic yeah. optimizations. Like maybe your car will be like, I'm going to avoid this road because it's usually busy. Um, and so you'd end up with less overall traffic and less idling. 
So that's very if yeah, that could be very interesting if it's if it's deployed at scale. I think that's super super cool. Yeah, and I think there's some some really cool exciting implications there. Um, Matthew, it has been incredible to have you on the podcast today as we're wrapping up. Um, for the last question, I'd love to ask you uh, pick your brain a little bit about what you're really excited about what you're what you're forecasting some crazy things that you see think we're going to see um in the ai in ai and in this space in the next like five to ten years hmm so definitely i mean we, we already talked about like generative ai but definitely i think everyone knows that's a game changer at this point i've seen some really cool stuff with uh using it to create synthetic data so i remember when gans first came out so gans is just like two neural networks fighting against each other basically and one's trying to create like fake data and one's trying to look at the data and say hey is it fake or not um but i've seen some really cool stuff where people have you know made x-rays that look real to mimic specific diseases and stuff because in the medical domain it's really difficult to get access to data um you know because you need you need people's consent and stuff so if you could just make right. data that is representative of what already exists and you can bypass that um, and you could imagine also doing this in terms of um, studies with chemicals that you know they're under review by the FDA or whatever you would need much fewer people to do the study if you could just take a few and then extrapolate it using synthetic data uh, so I think that'll be super cool and then like we discussed with with language models you know putting them on your phones putting them on your watches basically everything even, even like a toast much like your toaster or whatever fine-tuned language model on it that would be cool uh, and then one i think that's kind of slipped under the radar i would say is is like virtual reality ar i think a lot of people think it's a gimmick yeah. um and right now today i'd say it's still a bit, a bit gimmicky uh and the metaverse especially i think that's a bit that's a bit far up but there's definitely like applications of it that i could see being used very widely um I t i've spoken to people about google glass and a lot of people say like oh google glass you know, sucked if they would. But actually, I think Google Glass. Dude, you're ahead of their very time. successful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like it kickstarted this whole new, this whole new view. And I'm surprised they haven't done anything since that. But you, I think the fact that both Meta and Apple are diving into this very deeply is a good indication that it's going to be um, pretty important. I mean, you have things like smart surgery. Imagine if you have a surgeon with glasses on who could see inside of your body using augmented reality. That probably would make them do a better job i don't know uh so yeah super cool and then obviously smart home is like we already kind of uh beat with the dead horse yeah yeah super super cool um it, when you're talking about the synthetic th uh synthetic data and stuff it, it made me think of recently amazon had this big problem where for their amazon go right that you go to the store just grab what you want and leave uh, they're trying to build this whole concept and they had this problem because they didn't want you to have to scan your phone. They just wanted you to just put your handprint when you walk into the store. But they're like, there is no centralized, there, there's no database of like, you know, a million handprints for us to train this model off to tell if it's a human hand or a fake hand or whatever. So they literally created synthetic data. They created a database of over a million fake hands and they trained the model off of that. And then it successfully works for actual people's hands because everyone's palm is different. Um, and they're actually able to identify real human hands off the synthetic data, which is, you know, really interesting because, you know, you mentioned earlier the problem with like model collapse or you kind of like train a model with its outputs and, and you have the collapse. So it's like in my brain, I'm like, you know, like at what point is it kind of in that same direction? But it's really cool um, 
that we're able to do some of this really synthetic the synthetic data stuff and i think i think you're spot on i uh, when you predict this is going to be something really big moving forward uh a lot of times people are like how do we do x y and z we don't have high quality data it's like we're going to generate the data and then we're going to train it <laughs> so it's really really crazy where that all goes yeah. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the Oh yeah, Sorry, no. Just say, the hard part is the edge cases, right? Very easy to get the middle of the bell curve, but it's hard to simulate uh -huh. the edge cases. Um, so I think you might still have to have efforts so, to get those edge cases. Um, so for example, with language models, uh, one thing I've seen, I think Google is trying to do this, but if you have a generative output with images, for example, you'd have to have some kind of actor crit critic model at the end of it to say, oh, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And for everything that's kind of like borderline, it uses that uh -huh. edge case, stores it somewhere, and uses that to train on, you know, as, as like edge cases for, for training this model. And so that could be a, a cool way of using synthetic data to generate edge cases or at least like constrain edge cases using this act-critic model. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, that's super cool. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate all your insights, uh, everything you shared and everything you're working on. It's, it's awesome. I'm going to have to get you back on here again and uh, as you continue to work on stuff. If people are interested in finding out a little bit more about what you're working on, um, getting in contact with you, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Yeah, they. Uh, so I have my website. It's mpstuart.io. And I think it has links to like my, my email and stuff. You know, I'm pretty easy to find through... Harvard's directory. So yeah, just shoot me an email if you if you have anything you want to ask me about. Uh, that very cool. Okay, and I'll obviously and stuff. So yeah. Okay, sounds good. And I'll leave a uh, I'll leave a link to your website in in the description of this as well, so people can listeners can go find that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today to the listener. Thank you so much for tuning in to the AI Chat podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts, and have a fantastic rest of your day.